But God, to me, because there is one of the mysterious elements in our makeup, in our being, is we're not just the sum total of, you know, principle, principles, whether they're enlightened or not principles. There's a, there's a, our humanness has a personhood to it. And that personhood is not about the ego, which is just a kind of a shrunken idea of that. It's about this warm individual engagement with being. And so that just as greater consciousness is reflected in our consciousness, greater, uh, you know, love is reflected in our love, presence is reflected in our presence, this sense of selfhood that we have is also built in somehow to the universe, to being. That being is involved with itself in this whole way, in a relational way, in a sense. And that arises as our selfhood. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather. And in this episode, I am joined by poet, author, teacher, and Zen practitioner Paul Weiss to discuss his latest book, The Dharma of Direct Experience, Non-Dual Principles of Living. Not only does Paul share some of his poetry, but he also talks about the importance of reciprocity, thinking about intimate embrace rather than non-duality, and the lessons learned living in an intimate universe. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Paul Weiss began serious practice in Zen as well as Tai Chi in 1966 and spent years in several training and monastic settings, including in schools and clinics in China. In 1981, he founded the Whole Health Center in Bar Harbor, Maine, where he teaches, counsels, and offers meditation retreats and his true heart, true mind intensive. A lifelong poet, he is the author of two collections of poems and essays, You Hold This and Moonlight Leaning Against an Old Rail Fence, Approaching the Dharma as Poetry. He joins me today to discuss his latest publication, The Dharma of Direct Experience, Non-Dual Principles of Living. Paul, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to speaking with you. I enjoyed the book, The Dharma of Direct Experience, and I found it a really interesting book, kind of how it was not formatted, but set into sections. And the first section is very kind of autobiographical. I would not consider the book a autobiography or even a spiritual autobiography, but I think it's, I hope it's fair to say that you use these experiences in your life to ground your teaching, what you're putting in the book. Is that yeah, fair? Exactly. I think I say in the introduction that it's not really, an, it's not a, an autobiography or insofar it's an, an autobiography, it's not an autobiography of me personally, but of the evolution of an understanding. Mm, okay. And that understanding was a grounding for all the work that was to continue to, to happen. Yeah. Okay. And it seems like you had a very early moment of insight when you were about in the sixth grade, I think. Is that correct? I was wondering, this moment of insight was what exactly? Yeah, well, I, you know, I wouldn't just say a moment of insight. It was a growing sense that there was something going on here, you know, beyond the everyday way we, we try to, under, to deal with it or understand it. And 
Yeah, that, that I'm just, the, the sense was that there was something going on here that was complete and interconnected. Mm. And that all the ways that, and that we couldn't really talk about it with using our language. And as I, I talk about an incident in the book where I'm standing on a street corner with a friend and at my instigation, we were playing this game where we were, we were trying to just reel off every word, thought and idea that came into our minds as one whole long sentence because that was the only way of a trying to, you know, communicate what all of this was. It was everything at once. <laughs> so that was that impulse that I had at the time. Okay. Yeah. And I want to kind of linger on this a little bit because some of the things you talk about in the book, um, childhood seems to be an emphasis in this childlike awareness. And one of the questions I had is this experience when you were in the sixth grade, at one level, it seems almost like it was a kind of remembering of how you may have experienced the world much younger before we had language, before you had any, any of us would have had any. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to that end, I was wondering, you have a poem, I think, that addresses a lot of these issues, and it's called 14. And I was wondering if you would mind reading that poem for us. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, when I think back over my life, I feel a tremendous connectedness to that little, to that kid back mm. there at different stages. Yeah. And unlike some people whose lives go through certain sudden shifts in their outlook, I really see a continuity from, from myself from an early age. And this particular poem, which is at the very beginning of my book called Early Foundations, documents an experience I had when I was 14. And I can remember sitting by the window, having this intimation, this experience, and really wanting to remember that I had it. I said, hey, you know, you're so young when you're older, you're not going to maybe know what you know now somehow. So I just fixed it in my mind. And for that reason, I was able to write this poem about it, you know, many years later. And this poem is called 14. When I was 14, I sat by the bedroom window in the late afternoon and looked out through the storm and screen over a lawn and a suburban street and the houses and the sun not quite setting through the telephone wires. And I saw the great haze of the smog settling over a world and suffused with a light and a voice that spoke of a secret behind all places and all times. And that voice moved like a wave over the curve of the heavens and entered my window and trembled in my body, saying, I am here, I am you, you know what I am. And in that moment, I knew that I knew what needed to be known for all my life. Wonderful, wonderful. And so this would have been, what, like three, maybe four years or so after that experience in the sixth grade? Right. Yeah, four years. Okay. All right. And it seems like this is, you know, like you said, this has carried you over throughout your life. And this is one of the things that I found so interesting. And there was one section of the book, please correct me if I mangle this, but you were observing that 
so often we don't, we kind of forget that child, you know, reclaiming the child that we were, you know, it, it, almost everything that we do in our lives was set at that moment. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah. yeah, there's no, several aspects of it. One is that, you know, as I say, I think that we do have certain, in, in the innocence of our childhood, you know, perceiving, we are gifted a certain amount of that openness and non-dual perceiving that we mm-hmm. lose eventually. But in addition to that, the childhood is so tender and it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the realm, you might say, it's the playing field where we first begin to lose our instinctive or non-dual awareness and begin to take on a way of perceiving the world and how that happens and the various kinds of traumas that we go through as children and even at infancy has such a deep effect on how we begin to circle the wagon, so to speak, around a separate self and develop a separate self. And so it's important to go back, both in our healing work, in our acknowledgement of others, it's important to go back and to, to the, you must say, you might say to the, to the scene of the separation mm. and to really use that as a guide for opening and as also a way of embracing that part of ourselves. Mm. So I refer to the child at several points, in the, several points in the book talking about our basic vulnerability, the legacy we have as we come into the world of that openness of being that is a reflection of our, our deeper self and that we can turn to it not only by turning to well, and also that those characteristics of childhood, the openness, the innocence, the direct perception is also necessary to begin to allow space for that reawakening in our, our later years, which is why this emphasis on becoming the little child in Jesus and elsewhere is, is so important. Right. Yeah. It brings to mind, I've heard this a couple of different ways, but one of the ways that I always kind of explain this when I'm trying to address this, like in a classroom, is there's a J.D. Salinger story, Teddy. Mm-hmm. And Teddy, you know, are you familiar with the story? Mm-hmm. Where he's this, I suppose, a, like a reincarnated guru or something. And he is speaking to this reporter and he has this moment where he's like, well, you know that the apple or the fruit of knowledge in the Garden of Eden He's like, you know, we need to throw all of that up. And it seems like that's part of what's happening here is we need to let go of a lot of the false ideas and false perceptions that we've taken on as knowledge throughout our adult lives to get back to that childhood innocence. Yeah. Is that a fair yeah, way of, one of, of the, describing it? One of the it? principles, I, I realize in my book, there are a number of paired concepts. Mm. Look at all those paired concepts. They talk a lot about, cover a lot about what the book is about. One of those paired concepts, concepts is identification and intimacy. Mm. So intimacy is, is this direct experience when there is not a lot of mental construction standing between us right, and our experience. Mm. But as our mental construction arises, our, we identify right, with the contents the rising contents of the mind, and we begin to, our life then primarily becomes a relationship of identification with the arising contents of the mind, which is an indirect or can ever, ever after an indirect way of being in relationship. We see things through our ideas, our projections, our labels. And so we're seeing things through our identification, including identification with this arising idea of a separate self and ego which is an idea that arises that begins to take on mass and that we're identified with, that we're living out. When we, as we relax all of that, there, none of that is coming between us and our direct experience. And that would be the beginning of what I call intimacy, mm. when there's just our availability 
to what's arising and our presence with it without anything standing between us and that thing, our openness to that thing. Right. So, yeah. and is this because you wrote kind of going back to that experience in the sixth grade mm -hmm. that you said, I saw that my grasp of reality was governed arbitrarily by the structures of my mind. Oh, and no, that's no, I think that's from, isn't that the, the later experience I had? It could be. Yeah. <laughs> it could that's, be. That's from a later. Oh. That's from um, a later experience. Okay. I, I, I think it was when you were still young, though. Yes. Um, I, yeah. I talk about an experience I had when I was 15. Okay. Which I was reading this book on Einstein. And, and oh, yes. Yes, that is. I, and I, I was I trying to get my mind around. I'm sitting there where I'm on a yeah. family vacation with my family. I grabbed this popularized book on the teachings of the principles of Einstein. And I was reading about how time is relative, you know, and someone traveling in a spaceship is mm. going to be aging differently and having a, being in a different time frame than right, we are. Right, right. And my rational mind could say, how, you know, time is everywhere. Everything, how can, how can that be? So in a sense, it was like a Zen koan for me. Mm. Here I was being presented with something that my mind could not fathom, but which I was saying, no, here, this is supposed to be true. And I couldn't just walk away from it and I couldn't understand it. So I sat with it, trying to create room for it to say, how can, how, how can this be? With the additional pressure, it's like the Roshi sitting there with a stick, the additional <laughs> pressure of my parents saying, come on, we have to go over and eat at the dining room. You know? And I say, hold on, hold on. I'm and suddenly the whole structure of my mind fell away and I was able to understand that's when I realized that it wasn't about trying to fit a teaching like this into my structure of my mind. It was about letting the structure of my mind relax and open so that I could receive this at a new level. And at that point, something happened that would always serve me in which not only I let go, you might say, of my loyalty <laughs> to those structures, I was able to let them relax and I was able to feel the joy of that. Mm. And so in the future, it was easier for me to relax those structures and receive new insights without trying to fit it into this cramped space. Okay. So that was, that was, I didn't say, that was 15 at the time. Okay. Yeah. It just seemed to me to have echoes of that previous experience that that as i look back you know when writing the book it was great because as i look back i saw i, I began to recall and see how these steps were all moving in yeah. the same direction and yeah. fulfilling themselves later in my life yeah yeah now when you had this experience when you were 15 or this insight if i can say that had you already started exploring zen buddhism at that time no no it was just no. before Okay. And when did you first come across the teachings of uh, well, Zen? When I was 16, a teacher in high school, who I didn't otherwise have any particular close relationship, somehow instinctively handed me this book. And if you know what it was, we were supposed to write, we were supposed to, it was an English class, and we were supposed to go through a list of books and pick out a book, one of the books from that list that we wanted to read and write about. And my teacher came up to me and he said, <clears throat> never mind that list. I think you'll be interested in this book. <laughs> bless him and he handed me suzuki's you know essays in zen buddhism yeah. <laughs> and i opened that book and it was like that was the first time that i was reading something that was speaking to the kinds of intuitions that i was having mm -hmm. so i started calling myself a zen buddhist at the age of 16. <laughs> yeah it wasn't for a while a while that i would begin to you know learn more about right. zen but that's when right. i first was introduced to it yeah yeah, Suzuki was a introduction for many people, I think. One of the uh, only writers around. For right, 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 right. Yeah, and Zen Buddhism, I think, was one of the dominant forms in the United States and probably in, you know, Europe as well. The, it was, seemed to be the one that most people 
kind of flocked to for a while. And I think that kind of shifted a bit part of in that the 90s. popularization of the beats. Yeah, and, right. And part of it was that there were really by the by the mid 60s and even early 60s, there were already teachers coming over from Japan. And so it was one of the first forms of Buddhism that began to really make itself available in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Now you went to China and practiced and trained in some monastic settings in the Chan tradition, which is the kind of the foundation for Zen. Yeah. Right? Well, actually, my my time in China was not around Chan. Was not around. Okay. I, I did I did sit with some Chan masters here in this country, okay. but my time in China means it mostly had to do with Qigong. Okay. And and Taoist teaching. Okay. Which I did spend some time there on my own, and then I also brought some groups over with me to, to study. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of the, and I apologize if I get it all mixed up here. One of the things I appreciated in your book is that you draw from a variety of spiritual traditions, you know, so it's not just Zen, you know, but you do have the Taoism and touch of Vedanta in there, but also a nice dose of Christianity. And one of the things that struck me as really kind of curious in a sense is that you talk about God a lot in the book. And that seems to be pretty unusual for someone coming from a Buddhist perspective. Yeah, I, I do talk about how at a fairly early age, you know, it was part of the same openness. It was almost like a poetic openness to reality. Mm. And so in a sense, my, I can almost say my ultimate religion is poetry. And by poetry, I mean this creative openness to reality as it arises and all the ways it expresses itself. So I could truly embrace and appreciate the, poet, the poetry of Zen. And by the poetry of Zen, I don't just mean the, the literal written poetry, but the poetry of that whole approach to reality. And I could really embrace and appreciate the poetry of a God-centered understanding and, feel how, and take them both in and feel how they both completed each other. For me, they both served. And that together they were, they were, they meant more to me that, you know, that both were better than either or. That both and is always as a principle, the completion of something. Okay. And to, to say, oh, I believe this way, therefore that way is not mine or off, is simply to exclude a part of, you know, our, our immersement in being. Because all these different paths have some valuable immersement, you know, in reality to offer us. And it's... Um, I feel fortunate that I just feel open to be able to embrace both paths. And then because of that, to really see how the teachings, without meaning to just flatten them, but really include each other and can be transposed in our discussion, things that are being talked about in, 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 in a, in a theistic, theistic religion, for example, I can embrace it for itself and also see how it translates into a language that is non-theistic, but which is really allowing the same depth of experience. Hmm. So I feel like in my own, and because I had, and as, as I say, so much of the early part of the book is talking about my own direct experiences. I could see for myself directly, and those experiences themselves were both God-centered and non-God-centered. And I could see how all of that was stemming from something, you might say, that was upstream, certainly upstream of, of our mind's capacity to categorize, you know, that we may tend towards Culture for cultural and other reasons, embracing one path or another, but the, the raw material, you might say, is beyond all of that. Mm. And I feel very enriched and fortunate to be able to, you know, to drink from the different sources. All right. 
Yeah. And it seems to me, I know that in the Zen tradition, there is an aspect of poetry that's kind of inherent in Zen. And the other thing too, I think that poetry is so helpful in this sense, because the, you know, it's what, you know, the, in the Tao Te Ching, you know, the, 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 the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. And that it seems like we just kind of have to use language in a way to try to circle about this thing that ultimately is ineffable. The problem of the mind is this, its desire to be literal. Mm. There's this direct connection between a thought or a structure of thought and some reality. And mm. even when we talk about the most subtle realities, whether it's quantum physics or whether it's subtle metaphysical stuff, it still has this desire to be literal and realistic, you know, the real truth. And that's never true. You know, mm. it's always, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with literal descriptions as long as we know that they're just a, a mode of, of the mind trying to approximate something. When we take things literally, we start getting into, you know, fundamentalism and dogma. And yeah, that, that's yeah. everything in life. It's not just, not just religion. It's what, right. what's my literal thought about you? Well, no, that's right. just... <laughs> right, 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 right. Not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I like, you know, you mentioned in the book about the different traditions that um that there's a common source for all of them. And the image that I was thinking about, and I got this from a scholar, scholar of mysticism, Jorge uh, Ferrere. I may be mispronouncing his last name, but the way that he the, the analogy that he uses is of like a ocean with different, you know, you have different spots on the beach, you know, mm -hmm. and each spot can be, you know, has its own perspective, but it's all looking at the same source. The yeah. Same. I talk about is, you know, is different doorways into the same yeah. castle, you know, right. You know, just, and each experience, not only different traditions, but for myself, self, each experience that I had was like a door, a different doorway or window into the same space. Mm -hmm. You see a different perspective from each. Right, right, right. So, so many rooms in one mansion, something like that. Yeah. Many so, uh, <laughs> yeah. So we, you mentioned God, you talk about God. What is God for you? How, how do you understand? Uh, not a easy question at all, I'm sure. Well, <laughs> Uh, you know, on one hand, I could I could talk kind of technically or metaphysically about, you know, it's like I could start by saying that the universe, I don't know, the, there's a fundamental awareness of being. That awareness is the source. I mean, if you, unless you're a materialist and really believe that our capacity to be aware is merely a, you know, an artifact of different circuits in the brain that's that are processing input and therefore in creating a illusion of awareness. I don't, I don't believe that. And none of the, the, none of the spiritual systems, of course, believe that there's a, whether you're talking from the point of view of Buddhism, especially, you know, to start, let's start with Buddhism. Buddhism acknowledges or talks about the, the, the fundamental emptiness or openness of being, the awake nature of being, which is awareness, and the responsive capacity of being, which ultimately is our creative capacity and our, our love in response to, to each other. And so even Buddhism, <clears throat> talks about an underlying nature or capacity of being which manifests as everything else that we experience, including our own capacity for these things. My capacity for awareness, in a sense, is the universe's capacity for awareness acting through me, etc. Right. 
my presence, my openness is my availability to the openness of being itself. You know, and my love is just my capacity to express the underlying responsive love nature of being. So you can talk about this. And so Buddhism can talk about this without using the word God, mm-hmm. or we can take all of that and, and feel its depth or dimension in a personal way or a relational way. You know, and this can be a very fine line there because you can read some Buddhist texts that really sound very theistic as if, as if you know, universal truth is speaking to you, you know, or basic emptiness is speaking and it's like God speaking. And there's a relational quality to it. But with but God to me, because there is one of the mysterious elements in our makeup, in our being, is we're not just the sum total of you know principle principles, whether they're enlightened or not principles. There's a there's a our humanness has a personhood to it. And that personhood is not about the ego, which is just a kind of a shrunken idea of that. It's about this warm individual engagement with being. And so that just as greater consciousness is reflected in our consciousness, greater uh, you know, love is reflected in our love, presence is reflected in our presence, this sense of selfhood that we have is also built in somehow to the universe, to being. That being is involved with itself in this whole way, in a relational way, in a sense. And that arises as our selfhood. Mm. So to begin to experience, to be open to experience that level of personal relationship and selfhood and to have a relationship to fundamental reality also is that dimension of of selfhood is is again just to begin to phase into the sense of god as this conscious loving presence that has a self capacity to it not again not a self in the narrow sense but this universal self and that we participate in that we have a relationship to that and that simply adds a dimension and a wholeness to our relationship to reality that's totally not at odds with let's say a buddhist way of relating to reality or a taoist way right yeah i think in the book you wrote something about that i think that god's initial question was who am i yes. and that the universe is the answer to that question and that's just mythologizing same... of the process you know yeah 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 but we participate um, in that mythology yeah all right yeah, and we have to ask the same question, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, the same question. And that's the universe asking it in us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is my seeing of you is the universe seeing itself as you through me. My right. asking this question and my openness to the question, who am I, is a reflection of that un- ultimate creative force wanting to experience self in, in fullness. And so this question, who am I, is just the creative openness mm-hmm. to manifestation mm-hmm. and, and fulfillment of, of being. In the yeah. same way, we can work with that question as an as a as an enlightenment question, right? As we talk about in the book, and as we do in our True Heart, True Mind workshop, we use this question, "Who am I?" Not as an intellectual question, but as a focal point for coming into this moment of complete openness and complete intention to be available to the underlying nature of what we are. And as we rest in, as a human being, doing that process, as we rest in that state of openness. The mind's going to continue to pour stuff in, but rather than grabbing onto it to pad our ego's resume or, or points of view, we just notice these things and say, well, who is that? Well, who is that? So we keep returning to the question. We keep returning to openness and availability, and hence the possibility of deepening levels of realization or integration at this moment. 
one of the things I would like to do, I think, is just being mindful that some of the listeners may be a little bit unfamiliar with some of the terminology that we're using. So, and maybe this is just the, you know, the instructor in me, but I wanted to be clear on some of our terms. Sure. And one of the, and I can, we can do this a couple of ways. I can, kind of say how I am understanding it. And then you can correct me <laughs> or, or confirm, but the, and these are, I think both connected here, but non-dual itself, non-dual and emptiness. Yeah. And so my understanding is that, oh, where do I want to start? Well, I'll start with emptiness because this is often connected to this idea of nothingness, which I always hear in, from a Buddhist perspective as no thingness. Right. And that everything, it, there's, it's not a separate object. You can't separate anything from anything else. Right. So like the human, instead of seeing myself as a discrete object cut off or even person cut off, I have to consider the foods that I eat and the soil that the plants are grown in and the, 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 the microbiomes in the soil and the worms and the sun and the rain and the entire cosmos has to be there for me to exist. So I am intimately connected to all things. Yeah. And that uh, uh, from the Buddhist point of view, I think emptiness, what it really doesn't mean empty of something because right. that's just another idea we have. It's empty of all the ways we project our own ideas and, and categories and things onto right. a completely open, fluid, you know, and interpenetrating, interdependent reality. There are no separate things. A thing can only be a category arising in the way our, our mind hmm. separates and labels. Whereas reality, as I, going back to my sixth grade experience, yeah. which was what, basically what I was recognizing then, is that it's false to speak of separate things. Nothing exists without anything else. And it all exists as one totality. And that totality is not a totality of a bunch of separate things. It's the totality itself that's somehow expressing itself as all these separate things, but it's not nailed down. And so therefore it's open, it's fluid, it's empty. Hmm. It's, you know, it's, you know, we're not, we're not stuck for good <laughs> with right, any right. picture of what is. Right. Yeah. So and, that oh, that emptiness is an openness, is an inviting space, an availability rather than you know, separate things that are the real estate's not all taken. Right, and then that feeds into non-duality because that is what non-duality is, right? That yeah, well, non-duality is just another category of the mind. Non-duality is a word I'm not, I, I don't actually care for a lot yeah, i use yeah. it sometimes functionally and it was not my choice to use that word in the title of the book right, right. because as soon as you have a flashing sign that says non-duality this is already in fact the word non-duality itself right. is kind of inherently dualistic mm. because i always say half jokingly but it's true non-dual as opposed to what yeah <laughs> and then you say well as opposed to duality well you right. <laughs> so so non-dual is a very clunky word to mm. talk about in a, a reality that's just open and can't be nailed down and is and is participating in a holistic way in itself mm. there's not there's not two ever two sides it's just how the mind not duality is just how the mind tends to frame our experience mm. 
How would you prefer to express that? Well, again, I can use non-duality. Well, I would, you know, my, my original instinct for the title was rather than using the word non-dual, I like the word intimate. You know, mm. I would have called it lessons from an intimate universe mm. or lessons from an intimate reality. Because when there's nothing placed between one thing and another, when there's nothing placed between myself and another and something else, there aren't two sides. There's no dual there. There's participation in one reality that can express itself in you know, all kinds of dimensions and all kinds of ways. So, you know, non-dual non is very technical and has the capacity to become kind of pretentious. It becomes another label. Well, I'm a non-dual. Well, right, right. So I just, you know, relax and just be intimate with what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I've heard a lot of people kind of focus on this non-dualism. And I've heard that criticism as well. It's like, well, if it's non-dual, that's a dualistic category. Ultimately, I mean, non-dual from our ordinary standpoint is paradoxical and nonsensical because we are designed to think, or mm. as far as we think, to think mm. dualistically. Right. And any true so-called non-dual statement is always going to be kind of paradoxical. So like something mm. I say in, in, in the poem in the beginning of the book is one of my early experiences, which I call interpenetrating, right? What do I call? Inexhaustible non-exclusiveness. The mm. realization that there was no thing that was exclusive of anything else. Right. That there was no that there were no there was no thing that did not include everything, and that it was impossible for anything to exist that wasn't the arising or the present, you know, the, the appearance of everything. But right. there's no way the mind can piece that together, except you know, very you know theoretically. But it's an it's an all embracing experience that can only be again experienced directly is what I mean by direct experience, not by way of the mind. And its way of trying to, you know, calculate or understand. Okay. To that end, I wanted to ask if you would read another poem. Mm -hmm. I am thinking, I hope this is one that I gave you, but I was thinking that what might be appropriate to what we have just been discussing is In Me, the Universe. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. You did mention that one too. Good. <laughs> yeah. So this is, uh, yeah, a poem which is really expressing that in us, whatever that absolute reality is, in this case, I'm just calling it the universe, that universal reality is present through us, and it's what joins us as one reality, right? And, and that's what we are. In me, the universe presumes to be lover and friend. In me, the universe presumes to be lover and friend. In me, the universe hovers at the choice point between love and fear. To bless or to withdraw. I am the one who hovers here. I am the one who speaks from the heart of what we are. Shall we agree not to disown ourselves and the voice that speaks us? Here, where the stars are just emerging in our dusk, the river lights are gleaming and rose and jasmine perfume the courtyard. 
shall we not convene our ancient mariachi band when there is so many eager and waiting to dance into the night? Oh, friend, pick up your divine instrument. I am the one who calls to you from who you are. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for reading that. There were a couple of things that um, kind of jumped out me with this. And one is this idea of choice. And uh, the other is love. And you talk about love quite a bit, but I was also thinking in terms of this poem of kind of goodness and inherent goodness and playfulness in in and that's buddhism's term for it too basic goodness reality yeah. basic goodness yeah yeah and you you wrote that um and the statement here from the book is a uh, buddha's enlightenment experienced in the present tense and that the truth of all delusive manifestation is original goodness and I liked that. And one of the things that it brought to my mind was the something that the theologian Matthew Fox talks about a lot, where he discusses original blessing. Yes. Right. And, and I saw a nice comparison there that the original state is one of goodness. That's right. And I realized in that poem, I'm really tough. I'm, I'm, it's so funny looking at, either, you know, when I look at my writing again, or I look at my poetry again, I'm sure this is true for all writers. I always learn something new. It te has something new to teach me that, says, oh yeah, that's something that's in there. And in this poem, I'm, I'm, I, I can see how I'm, the sequence, first I'm making a basic statement about our, our identity with the whole. That's what's speaking through us. Can we agree to, to, to uh, own ourselves as we are, as well as that voice that speaks through us? You know? But in me, the universe is not only presuming to be that lover and friend, but in me as a human, there is this thing that happens where I am, if the universe itself through me is also not only being absolutely what it is, but it's also hovering at this choice point. We as human beings are, you know, can either allow that love to flow through or we can respond to other feedback loops and retreat. So the universe is also hovering at this choice point between love and fear. Are we going to bless, which is to allow the full abundance of our being to flow out, or are we gonna flinch and pull back from that? Then it goes to our reciprocity as human beings. Can we agree together, therefore, not to, not to, uh, what was the word I used? Again, <laughs> withdraw ourselves, not to um, be, disown ourselves. Not to disown ourselves as human beings, which is our starting point. And similarly, not disown that voice, that greater voice that speaks us together. Here at this moment, and then it's almost, you know, at this opportune moment, when everything is present for us, when there is this, you know, fragrance of being, you know, the river lights are gleam, gleaming, etc. Shall we not convene? Shall we not re resume this wonderful dance, this wonderful music that that's ancient to us? And I playfully say this mariachi band because that's mm. just playful music. Shall we not agree? Let's just you know put down all those differences and let's resume our mariachi. When there's so many. Ultimately, all of us, all our souls are eager and waiting to dance into the night. So let's pick up the instrument. And then I come back to this first thing. I am calling from the source of what you are, from the source of what we are. It's the same voice calling us. Yeah. 
Now, in what you just said, I noticed that you used a word that you also discuss in the book. And so I, I want to ask you about this. And that word is flinch. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so if I understand, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, there's this flow that we can participate in. There's this inherent goodness that we can participate in, but yet often we don't because we are separate from that flow somehow. And I think this is where you said, you know, we flinch from it. Am I right? And I know that flinch is an acronym. I don't remember exactly what the acronym stands well, for. Off the top of my head. I'll come back to the acronym in a second, yeah. but yeah, we flinch, which is, you know, the basic withdrawal or stress response of our human organism when we, because we experience in this relative world of ours, we're experiencing uncomfortable experiences, negating experiences, starting de deprivation experiences, other traumatic experiences, starting with, you know, infancy and childhood, <clears throat> some major and some kind of like what we call everyday traumas that each of in, in each of those traumas, <clears throat> there's another image, if I can backtrack a, a mm -hmm. bit, I think this is an important image. There's another image I use because I also draw a lot about in our you know, brains, brain science and, and psychology and how that's also related to our, our spiritual understanding. We very early on, right at, at the early, right after birth and with, with the eye contact with our mother, etc., we begin, it, 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 it triggers the growth within us of <clears throat> certain neural networks that enable us to respond to other people and to attune to others, <clears throat> which is basically our empathy network. <clears throat> and that empathy network is a whole body network that allows us to be directly empath empathetically attuned to others. <clears throat> and that same network, however, then becomes the very same network that allows us to tune into ourselves and have, you might say, empathetic attunement with what we're feeling and what's going on. So that's a very open network, that empathy network. And it, it is a very vulnerable and it's a very open network because it's an intimacy network, right, as we know. But as we start having experiences that shock us out of that or traumatize us out of that openness where the mind, the mental response says, oh, I can't afford to be this open. I have to begin to get some separate sense of who I am and how to take care of myself and how to make sense of my life and how to survive in this life. That becomes necessitated by the dualistic world that we're living in. I gradually begin to withdraw from or don't simply rest in my empathy circuits anymore. I begin to go into all these other mental circuits. So these mental circuits replace my empathy circuits. These projective labeling and identity circuits begin to replace my intimacy circuits. Okay. So those are all the beginning of this flinch response. I'm not just open to reality with my innate empathy and love pouring out. I'm having to flinch back and say, wait a minute here. I've got to defend myself. Let me figure out this is. So that carries over into our whole development and, and later in life, depending on our own personal development, where there are certain experiences we can be open to and certain experiences that we flinch from. Not only, as I say in the book, not because we're not innately loving, but because we don't know how to access or be available to that loving in us in those moments, because the flinch response is so strong. So a lot of, I think, spiritual practice and spiritual teaching and a lot of the teaching that I try to do in the book and in, in my own work is how do we begin to work with that flinch response and re-educate our system to take care of ourselves while becoming more and more into our openness circuits, our, our empathy circuits. So one of the things I work with a lot and where this comes up in the book is talking about Tonglen, mm -hmm. which is a Buddhist uh, a compassion practice, which really involves opening our heart 
to others, even opening our heart to the pain of others and to the pain of the world, and also to the pain of ourselves, to know how to open ourselves to that pain without flinching, but to be able to call on a higher principle of availability of openness, to receive it in, and then be able to send back from that our highest capacity to bless mm. or to heal or to love. Mm. So that's a very profound spiritual practice. It's a Buddhist practice, but obviously very compatible with Christian, true Christian practice. And I use it as a very basic aspect of our own emotional healing, as well as our way of opening up our compassion for the world. And I say this, so we're learning to overcome the flinch response. And I, my acronym for flinch is the failure to love into the next conscious happening. Mm -hmm. The next thing that we're aware of, I don't know how to be here and love anymore. So we flinch. Okay. Mm. So how do we begin to re-educate our whole body, mind, and emotions to stay available? And that's a you know as worthy, obviously, a training as anything we can do. Right. And it seems that if I understand correctly, that in this flinching, in a way, you know, we're trying to protect ourselves, mm -hmm. but in doing so, we are kind of losing touch to who and what we really are yeah we're, we're really protect protecting our idea of ourselves and our idea of our own limitations and so what we need to learn in our practice is how to begin to get in touch with that part of ourselves that is greater than what we thought our limitations were and then how to begin to use that to to re-educate how to stand in the face of and not flinch in the face of not only that that which may be too painful but which somehow is overwhelming is more than I think I can handle, you know, and I don't know, I don't know how to measure up to this situation. So I have to shut down. Yeah. Tonglen gives us a way to stay present in just those situations and begin to unwind all those shutdowns. Yeah. I find the Tonglen exercise or meditation really interesting because it seems to be a little bit contrary to how I hear a lot of people thinking because part of it is you, my understanding is you kind of take in the, the suffering, you know, in the darkness and then within, yeah, with, yeah, within the heart center or somewhere, you know, we imagine it as, you know, sending forth that it's transforming into love. It's, and, it's related to the idea of emptiness. Yeah. Because we're no longer a solid thing. Our heart is not just some thing that's there to respond with specific emotions and to protect ourselves. Our heart, and the Sufis talk about this a lot, yeah. our heart is really our gateway into the spirit. You know, it's our gateway into our higher principle of understanding and being. So if we think of our hearts not as this individual thing that's taking on a burden, but as a doorway into our participation in greater heart, the greater heart, the greater yeah. life then we can bring it, breathe it into the heart, knowing that we're taking it into this great open space and emptiness and inherently healing space, you know, the basic goodness. Yeah. And then what comes, and we do it with the breath. The breath really helps to anchor it. So we breathe in that which we would normally resist mm -hmm. or breathe in another suffering into the heart, into that openness of being. And then as we breathe out, we send back from that openness, the healing energy, mm -hmm. the love energy or whatever, image that we have that we're giving back you know support or blessing yeah and that begins to yeah gradually unwind the flinch and expand our understanding and our capacity how to be available in life you know not only to others but to our own pain to yeah. the situations you know? yeah i find it to be very 
balanced in ways that because I see a lot of people that I think gut reaction might be a sort of flinch where like, no, 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 no. I just want, I'm just going to breathe in light <laughs> and project right. more light out. And it seems like, breathe in, you, you know, know, so many new age practices where, you know, how do you put up the barrier or the shield to breathe in the light? And then you put up your, your energetic right. shield to shield out. And that's considered to be a great achievement. Well, it may be useful to a certain point, but then I see, I hear many people say, oh, you know, that, that that wasn't working for me after a point. I really realized that's a very limited approach and it's real. It's reinforcing the dualism that's reinforcing the threat. Right. Whereas when I begin to realize my own emptiness, I can welcome in what I thought was holding off and I'm just expanding my own being and my own wellness, really my own okayness in the process. Right. Right. Yeah. And so in part of this, flinching and separating ourselves off it also seems like one of the things that we do is we tell ourselves these stories about our situation and you address this as well mm -hmm. um i i think and you also write and i don't know if you say this in necessarily in terms of the stories but i think it applies that our fundamental choice is where we put our attention are we putting our attention on these stories that separate us do we put our attention on the flinch or do we put our attention on the openness of... on the, right do i put up do i put my attention on the story that keeps reinforcing my limited view of life or do i switch my attention to my capacity to be open in this moment which then creates open possibility again yeah mm -hmm. so you can see obviously there's a gentle tutoring all these things all these experiences of openness are both not habitual, they're, con they're contradictory, they're, they're contrary to what our mind's habit pattern has been, and they're also contradictory to what our safety habits might be. Mm -hmm. So at yeah. both levels, there's a re-education yeah. and learning how to be okay with that. And to yeah, and, it, and it's tricky to do, you know, I, and it's an ongoing thing, right? I don't, one of the things that I'm always concerned about, and this is why I liked your statement about the Buddha's enlightenment experienced in the present tense, because I think we have this tendency to think of enlightenment or awakening as a one-time event, and therefore I am enlightened, I am awakened. And I think it's an ongoing process that, you know, it, it's this constant, we constantly have to work at these things. And interrogate ourselves and check on these stories you and ask them to zero <laughs> yeah yeah well i just you know i recently had this experience where i've been holding on to a lot of anger and resentment and i i go out hike uh, every week and sometimes and i try to make my hike a meditational practice i you know i try to silence my mind and just kind of focus on where i am and what i'm doing but sometimes, you know, that mind just kind of filters away and that anger and that resentment starts coming in and it creates this story that's going, you know, over and over and over. And very recently I was doing that and I just stopped myself and I thought, what does this serve? Who does this serve? What narrative is this supporting? And just realized at that moment it's like it doesn't serve me or support anything let it go <laughs> let it go 
So that's a lot of, yeah, it's kind of a rational clarity about that that can be very helpful. And it's also helpful, that's why I say, I think in our practice to begin to adopt certain practices and certain responses that then become natural to us, as natural Mm -hmm. as our old French responses become, so that that we can use them and they continually come up for us when we need them. So that, you know, one of, I think one of the important things in the book is it's not at all, again, talking about certain spiritual experiences or certain principles or certain heroic absolute reference points. They're all part of the tenderness of our human experience and our human development, you know, and our human suffering and the tenderness of what's required to begin to bring healing to that. And, and that the basic foundation of that healing is the same as, you know, as that's being asked of us in all respects is this capacity to be present in an embracing way, in an embracing way with what's arising, which is also this Tonglen principle. Mm-hmm. So that I'm not, I'm, and, and this is really another way of talking about non-dual, whatever all the far out was talking about it mm-hmm. is. It's not to be at war with ourselves. Right. Moment to moment say, oh, I, I can embrace that. I don't have to be at war with that. Right. If I'm feeling some kind of limitation, then I don't have to like be down on that or say, well, I can't do this because of, I just turn to that embrace and well, let me hold you. Let me embrace you. Let me breathe with you. Let me do tongue len. Let me include you into the wholeness of being. Let me include my limitations into the wholeness of being. <laughs> if I have fear or anger coming up, you know, rather than to be at war with the fear or anger or to be at war with myself because I have fear or anger, you know, say, oh, I see you, you know, let me hold you. Let me breathe with you. Let me embrace you in this moment. For that matter, if I say, oh, I want to do tongue, I'm going to do tongue land with my anger. I'm going to do with something and I'm not able to do it. So I just do tongue land with the fact that I'm not able to do tongue land. Say, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. I'm not able to do tongue land. Somewhere along the way, there's something that we can allow. (laughs) And that becomes the starting. And then it all builds up again. Okay. I can breathe and accept the fact that I can't do tongue land right now. And I'm already back into Thailand, and I'm already more available, more open, and I'm already regaining my capacity to be present. Right. So there's always a gentle and easy way to come back into the wholeness and embrace mm-hmm. this moment and to do this healing, this self-healing. And the word healing, you know, is related to the word health and the word wholeness. Right. It's about becoming whole. So. And there's a poem you mentioned that was about self-healing in there too. Yes. Uh, well, actually, when you were speaking, the poem that came to mind was Go to Her Now. Yeah, that's yes. the one. Yeah. So this poem is actually also a meditation or a whole teaching on this practice of embrace and compassion for those parts of us that are that are most uncomfortable and the most uncomfortable to face. I'm going to put on my thicker glasses to read in light so i can read it more easily go to her now and because let's go to her this her is that part of ourselves that's hurting that part of us that's banished to the basement whatever it is and to begin it's really teaching us to stand in our capacity to hold the part of ourselves that we think can't stand in capacity for anything okay So the poem says, shine the light on your discomfort, whatever that is coming up in the moment. Tune to the fault line of your distress. Where's the fault line? This is, I'm not okay, I'm not where I'm distressed. Tune to the fault line of your distress and rest easeful 
in the dimension of your least ease. And that we are feeling the least ease. Relax and feel it, <laughs> the least ease. And then stay. Right? Rest easeful in the dimension of your least ease and stay. Don't run away. Be steadfast and sink as naturally as water sinks to its root. Release all other thoughts. Embrace just that sensation of dis-ease. You know, the one that speaks to you about how far you've traveled from your bliss and gather it to your heart as your long lost child. Go to her now, sit by the river, be a faithful mirror and a friend. You are capable, you are larger than her. So hold, do not deny, do not indulge, do not collaborate in some new or old belief, but sit together in the same light. Do not just listen to her sad tale, but listen to the essence of her tone until there is only the feeling. In other words, don't listen to the story of your problem, listen to the essence of the feeling of it until there's only the feeling and your love sounding a common note until the ghostly membrane of your separation that surrounds your joy releases and reveals its tender readiness to be welcomed back into awareness, like a child happy to be welcomed back into its mother's arms. Do not be intimidated by the cries that hide beneath the floorboards or in the eaves. Go to them now with love. Shine the light on your discomfort and rest easefully in the dimension of your least ease. For there is a greater secret that you both share. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. I like that a lot. We really are. Yeah. yeah. You know, from my the experience that I was having, um, I one of the techniques that I've tried, and I will have students do this sometimes and sort of journal about it, that when they're feeling, you know, anger or hurt or resentment or any variety of negative things to, instead of identifying with it, to just simply say, there is hurt, there is anger, you know, there is dis-ease in a sense. But I also really like what you have been talking about with that sort of the embrace, because I think that's still recognizing it. That's the next step. The first step yeah. is we have to separate from our identity with it by saying, I am not, you know, the anger is, I, right. oh, there's an anger feeling coming up. Right. right. And the next step is to, and, the, and, the, and the, it's a beautiful two-sided win-win when we embrace something like that, not only because we seem to be welcoming back or healing that thing but in but because in order to do it we're already having to activate our highest self our capacity for presence our capacity for embrace our capacity for love and therefore we're become in the hope in the very process of reaching out to heal we're becoming the person that is healed right 
Right. And it seems to me that a lot of what's going on in any kind of context of someone who is kind of identifying with these negative emotions is that so often we just want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want that to be acknowledged. And I think that this is a way of detaching, but then acknowledging at the same time. Yes. Well, this is a, no, this is a very important. This is this transactional piece between self and self. Because as I also say in the book, when I'm talking about story, a lot of our stories, our chronic stories, our stories that go back to childhood, mm-hmm. the stories that we act out, not even as conscious stories, but as how we see the world and we keep acting them out in different ways. Those stories all somehow have arisen from incompleted communications, unreceived mm-hmm. relationship to reality experiences with parents or with you know with others where either I didn't have the capacity or they didn't have the, to, to, to communicate and they didn't have the capacity to receive so there are all these experiences that are left unreceived unreciprocated and therefore they have no place to go but into my mental bank of formations into the big story so that's why I say an important principle of healing whether it's between myself and myself or with other people it's communication is so important. So in our True Heart, True Mind workshops, we combine contemplation work on who am I with communication to another, where another is just completely available to receive who you are and where you can say whatever's coming up. Because with complete, with non-projection and non-response, because what we're really doing there in a sense is we're reproducing that primal situation where there was no barrier to reciprocity between ourselves and the world, where we can let go of our story and just come back to being present. And so the same thing is true with our self-healing, when I can listen to myself and say, you know, I hear you, okay. I am the one who can receive your story. That story doesn't have to stand anymore. It can become part of my openness rather than my identity. Yeah. And would it also involve, you know, you said that, you know, we had these experiences that maybe set this up, you know, when we were younger. Would it also involve developing a compassion or empathy for those you know like the parents or the grandparents or the those yes of course but that comes later has to come later i mean it's easy to bypass and say oh i forget my parents and i see what they're just doing that's fine that's important to do but i may have over bypassed my own healing i've still internalized the story of what Mm -hmm. they did wrong right and so that even though i'm forgiving them now so as i allow myself to go in there. Like I, one of the work, kinds of work I do with people is a, you know, a deep emotional processing work where people really have permission to go in there and they don't have, there's no political correctness. Mm. You know, there's no spiritual correctness. They go in there and feel the feeling level and then to express and they can say, I hate you, mm. you know? And they can say that to their parents. They can say that to anybody, but it's not, it's part of their unfolding a, way, a healing process, it's not part of their acting it out in the world and projecting it onto others and identifying it. It's coming back into the core, giving expression. And then as that, and, and then so we come into our own wholeness that way. And we begin to come into our emotional wholeness again. And then as we do that, as we become whole beings again, what tends to happen spontaneously is the forgiveness and the mm-hmm. compassion for the others in our lives. Because we see that everyone is, is stuck in the same situation and acting out the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 it it's a difficult process, I think, and, yeah, but a worthwhile process. And it's difficult to demand a lot of, a lot of uh, intention or enough yeah. suffering to make us <laughs> be willing to do anything. <laughs>
<laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's unfortunate that I think that there is a tendency for us to get stuck in the stories and to just kind of have them on a repeat loop, you know, over and over and I, over. I say in the book on my section on the story making, I say that the most brilliant and creative thing that our human minds are able to do is to create a separate self mm. and then project a separate world on the other side of that separate self. And the second most creative thing we do is to create chronic states of being out of our ongoing stories and live within those chronic states yeah. as if they also were a secondary, there's like, they're like a secondary cage within the original cage of the separate self. Mm. And we have to begin to unfold or dismantle each of those cages step by step. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like often that we love our suffering. It's, it's a story. You're not yeah. gonna let, it's, our, it's what we got, right? Yeah. So I'm taking yeah. on it because I've got to have some way of understanding me and if being, you know, it's what, because we are in, in a, inherently, let me say it, are, are, because we are a whole innately, you know, we are, we're an expression of the wholeness of being, the wholeness of the universe, the wholeness of God, that even as egos, our only desire is to be whole come into our whole nature if all we've got to work with though is an idea of ourselves then we're going to juice that idea for all we're worth to try to become whole and and if it's my suffering that makes me whole makes me a whole thing a whole separate person i'm going to be attached to my suffering you know if it's my opinions and my hate that make me whole i'm going to juice that for all it's right. worth you know and so everything that we do even our most degraded behaviors or oppressive behaviors are you know, and we can talk about all the different worldly figures that we demonize. They're all just lost souls trying to find their way to wholeness, but doing it from a totally deluded standpoint. Right. So, so at some point, if we're fortunate enough to have something event happens that awakens us out of that paradigm, say, oh, I see the delusion of that. I've got to begin to practice differently. And then this goes back to, to Buddhism and Buddha's Eightfold Path, in which he's really, I, I sometimes talk about the, the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path, which is the core of Buddhist teaching, as the original 12-step recovery program. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, the, and there's a tremendous amount of parallel between the modern 12-step program. We have to, first of all, recognize the truth of our, our suffering, and that the way we're going about trying to cure it is only promoting it. And then we have to realize there's another possibility. Right? And we have to make ourselves available to another principle. And then once we do that, there's a program that we need to follow. So we need to clarify our understanding about the nature of our situation and our reality. Then we need to clarify our intention based on that understanding. Well, then how am I going to proceed? And then our, act, our behavior, well, then how am I going to act? And then we have to look at each of the things that can undermine or get in the way of those steps leading all the way to our capacity for openness and meditation and everything else. Yeah. And I know that there's a, how do I want to say this? Some of the earliest ways that the Buddha had been understood or depicted was as a healer. I think this idea of the medicine Buddha is one of the earliest ideas within it. And, you know, so this idea of healing is at the heart of the teachings and I, all too often, I think that our understanding, again, is, you know, oh, enlightenment, awakening, and whatnot, but it seems to be really more about that healing and wholeness, and I want to, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to say this correctly, and I'm trying to connect it to something you wrote, 
because you say surrender the self into a wider context of being, which I see as that opening up beyond that sort of limited ego view to a greater sense of being. And you say, for in that surrender lies our freedom. And I am, I think, trying to connect freedom with that wholeness and the health. Well, you know, Buddhism is about freedom. And yeah. really, ultimately, even if you look at the, well, yeah, anyway, it's about freedom. It's, a, it's the freedom to resume our, our fundamental being, which is inherently spontaneous, free, creative. Mm-hmm. And love is, freedom to love is part of that freedom. You know? And we get hemmed in by successive layers of, you know, identity and stories and labels and opinions and projections. Yes. So, and and again, as long as as Jesus says, Buddha says, as long as we're trying to hold on to ourself as we understand it, we're not going to have ultimately any real self at all. But if we give up that self, Jesus says, for my sake, which means for the sake of this deeper principle of being, then you will have your true, you know, eternal life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the um that idea of the self and letting go of the self is I think, you know, it's kind of scary for some people. I was going to say this too. So there's two it's there's a reciprocal relationship here going on, which is the other reason I'd like to speak of it in terms of the divine or of God. Mm-hmm. Because we're not a separate individual, right. there's a reciprocal relationship with all of reality. Mm-hmm. And and part of that is you know, they say, you know, there's a couple saying, you take one step to God, God will take a whole bunch of steps towards you. It means as we make ourselves available, the little bit that we can to something more, so much of that more may flood in and give us deeper understanding or insight or support. Well, we say on one hand, I might be struggling to say what, what the thing you quoted about, oh, having a wider context of being, give surrender the self. So I may say, well, I have to surrender the self to the wider context of being, but it also happens in the other order. I experience a wider context of being, and that makes it easier to surrender the self. So they work hand in hand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The way I usually teach this when I'm in the classroom is in the context of, you know, emptiness, no thingness, but also the Buddhist (laughs) idea of anatman, no self. Mm -hmm. But I I always say it's not so much no self but it's no permanent unchanging self and the way i always describe it is you know what you lose is that permanent unchanging self but what you gain in the process is you become one with everything right (laughs) you know like what the zen student said to the hot dog man you know that story yeah 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 make me one with everything yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes i know that one I'm amazed that some days there's still some people who don't know that one. (laughs) I can still get a little mileage out of it. (laughs) Well, I still really appreciate Zen because I, there's just this humor to it and humor to the teachings and a, a a lightness to it. I think that is really profound. It's a profound lightness, you know? So I, I know that we're starting to run out of time a little bit here, but there are a couple of things I wanted to ask because, and you don't really focus too much on this. You do write about it a little bit, but one of the things that comes out of all of this is, and I think you have mentioned it this morning, is this reciprocity mm-hmm. of with a variety of ways. In the book, you talk about the mental emotional principle. There's a social re- rep- reciprocity and then 
What I wanted to talk about here for a moment is the ecological reciprocity, because I see this as so crucial, again, in this context of non-duality, because part of the dualism, if I may, that seems to be at the root of our ecological suffering is seeing ourselves as separate from. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, this breakdown of reciprocity is really at the heart of all our woes, really, including yeah. our inability to see in a reciprocal way what's before our, our innate reciprocal relationship is with everything. We're not separate, go at our own way yeah. beings. But that's what we, as I, and in my other book, I use the, the image of it saying, you know, it's almost like our relationship to the natural world is, to, you know, take the money and run. And that's yeah. only going to get us so far. We have to give back, equally give back our wealth to the source of the wealth mm -hmm. to maintain the healthy reciprocity of ourselves and the planet and the ecology. Yeah. And that is something that we have progressively distance ourselves from it's like the hubris of the independent separate self the end the, the cult of the individual has only gotten stronger and stronger in our western history western right. civilization. and you know it's a real the ultimate tipping point right now and one thing that indigenous and that our own indigenous roots had was innately an understanding of our reciprocity with everything happening in our environment. One of my great teachers who's out of the line of my Buddhist teachers and my other spiritual teachers who I was very privileged to spend several years studying with was Martin Prechtel, you know that name, who was a, well, he, is a, he, was a, he grew up on a Pueblo reservation but spent many years in, 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 in Guatemala in a very still traditional Mayan village and became a very intimate part of that village and ultimately shaman in that village and a part of the spiritual hierarchy of the village. And he talks about those principles of reciprocity and the, the brilliance of the, the Mayan understanding. And I got, the, and, and he also has a wonderful understanding of the indigenous roots of our whole modern day experience and what happened. And I got such a deep under appreciation for the, again, this reciprocity is a receptive and every indigenous culture understood instinctively and every act in their daily life was from that reciprocity. And it was a step-by-step -step thing. If you take something, you have to give something back. If you, if you have something, if you're taking something and you don't have yet the, the means to give something back, give back your song. Mm -hmm. Start, you have to know that everything is a relationship. And then as it evolves, every step that you take, you don't go beyond your capacity to be in reciprocal relationship. Um, and we've totally separated from that. You know? Right. Yeah. We seem to take and create this sort of artificial value that just seems to support even more this separate identity of, you know, well, it's got value for me and I'm going to accumulate as much of this value as I can without. It's a flat, back. I just had this image, it's a flattening of the world. Yeah, in the way a movie is a flattening of the world, and we create this great, wonderful movie about how great we are and everything that's going on in the movie. But ultimately, it's all taking place within this flat screen. Mm. And until we open up our conscious capacity for presence and reciprocity, we're not back into the wholeness of yeah. universal life. You know, which is our yeah. life. Yeah. Well, and it's it's you know to have reciprocity, you have to have relationship. And I, I think that often, and this is why I go hike every week is because Absolutely. I wanted to 
create a relationship to a place. Yes. And it's been yes. a really interesting experience. I've been doing this for like a decade now. Uh, and uh, yeah, I have relationships with a tree and <laughs> various things, exactly. you know. That's a large part of my life is just yeah. out there, even down to with certain trees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, are my uh, teachers, yeah. my comforters, you know. I mean, start getting into my weirdness i'd have to talk about the extent of my relationship to to trees yeah. and such <laughs> oh yeah no there's there's one tree in particular i was leaving the summer on a vacation for a few weeks and i had to tell the tree i'm going to be gone for a few and i got really emotional and it's a mutual relationship <laughs> yeah yeah it says okay nick i'll think about you yeah, yeah. Well, one of the ideas that you quote in the book, and it's one of the ideas that I really love, it's the African concept of Ubuntu, because we are, I am. And to me, that is the heart of reciprocity. Yes. And I speak in the book about how that's true at every level right, of understanding. It's yeah. true at the social level. It's true at the spiritual level because it also grows out of the you know the buddhist understanding of uh, impermanence and no self and the interdependent relationship of everything and i also talk about going back to what i was saying about our nervous system right so you know because that's translated as yeah because we are i am it's also i've seen it translated as a person becomes a person through other persons mm. which is literally true if we go back to the image in our nervous system that in my open in my eye contact with you I create the nervous system that allows me to access you and access me. Mm. And out of that accessing of myself, I'm allowed to experience myself as a real whole being, real person. So I've become that person through my relationship with you and what that enabled in me. So on all these different levels, that reciprocity right. is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, things like this that give me some hope <laughs> for, <laughs> for where we are and where we're going. I was wondering if I could ask you to read one final poem, Where the River Widens. Yeah. Yeah. So this would be kind of a nice goodbye poem. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Hope for the journey. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I should just, I should just mention since we've been, we've been reading poems, the way the book is organized is it's primarily prose chapters, but I put a poem between many right. of the chapters to balance it and to lighten it right. up a little bit, yeah, which is uh, the opposite. I want to give a quick plug for my first book. Which, I'm, which to me, are they're very much sister books covering address some of the same things in different ways. And there I took 45 of my own poems that could be unfolded in a spiritual way. I gave the poem and then I commented on each poem. Here, I'm writing my commentaries and I stick in poems in different places. Right, right, right. Images of each other. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I did want to address the organization. I tried to very poorly at the very beginning where I mentioned that the first section was that sort of autobiographical and, section. And the first section talks about my primary experiences. Right. And the right. second section talks about the more about their implications mm -hmm. for, you know, again, our everyday human existence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this, where the river widens, never be afraid to go there where the river widens. This comes back to the original thing about to surrender the self to a greater context. Oh, it's no, don't be afraid to go there where the river widens. Once you thought only the bank was a suitable home for a creature like you. you know, I can sit on the bank and point to these, I'm here and that's all there. That's okay, that's all I am. 
Never be afraid to go there where the river widens. Once you thought only the bank was a suitable home for a creature like you. If asked about the world, you would explain the mind thing. It's a dry place. Grass is sleek and sharp. Bark is rough. Dirt crumbles. Hope is sky. One picks his way there amongst distinct forms and shadows. Now the taste of the water is in some ways like your first taste. The current of excitement like your first excitement. The cool, the cool on your skin, the buoyancy. Sometimes your feet touched bottom, increasingly not. You allowed it, still thinking, my life on the bank controls this. I will tell the others, it is good. But now it is too late to talk. You are midstream. The current has taken you. The river has taken you. You are an unfolding of that current, not a body with a self. Every moment you are descending, every moment you are rising in another world. You are the soft ribbon of life that can breathe anywhere. Here, where the river widens, everything widens. Everything calls. There is no end to this widening. This can never again be your life. But do not be afraid to go there. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, that's a really, I think, wonderful place to bring this uh, to a conclusion. And I just love the imagery there. I think that was one of my favorite poems in the book. So just a couple of final questions. In the book, you do mention a few times that there are some other books that you are planning on writing. So I was wanting to ask, I know sometimes authors don't want to talk about the projects that they're working on, but I will simply ask you this, what's next for you? All right, I refer to it in my book as the sometimes dysfunctional pipeline. I'm, sh I'm sure not all of these will get written. And uh, consequently, I, I included more references to some of the material in this book. <laughs> but if I was to say the three or four areas I really wanna write about is that, again, the nature of authentic heart-based communication mm -hmm. is a really important area. And so I do so much work in that area. And so to, I have a, a book in my mind called A Little Manual of authentic communication, speaking truth from the heart. Another book that I, in part I incorporated into this one, just in case, was A Field Guide to Conscious Loving Presence. I have a long series of talks and lectures on Tonglen, which I feel is vitally important, which a friend has very kindly transcribed. And so that may get turned into a book if I can do the final editing work. But I should also mention and I mentioned, as I mentioned in the book, where I have a very short section on Tonglen, that our website now has available to anyone all of the recordings of those 11 classes on Tonglen. So I would just like to mention that and go to our website, which is thewholehealthcenter.org, thewholehealthcenter.org. 
and you'll find that there along with some other recordings. And I think the book that I am maybe closer to writing next, and which actually is gonna be the subject of all of my talks this winter, is a kind of a scripture, actually a, a long poem, which is a kind of a sutra or scripture that came to me in the spring of 2018 called the Blessing Way Sutra, mm -hmm. in which I really, it's my, probably my most, I would say ambitious poem, but I didn't write it ambitiously. It just kind of came to me where it really describes the whole structure of being our innate perfection, how we get separated from it, what we need to do to begin to find our way back to blessing, original blessing, the path of love that begins to lead us back out of this maze that we're in. And it's written as a, as a long series of couplets in a very sutric fashion. I'm going to be reading and commenting on that also this winter, which people can access through our website. But I also want to write a, a long commentary on that poem line by line mm. as a book. So that may also be coming that's oh, something else yeah yeah i'd love to read that i have every intention i'm going to watch the videos on the tongue len uh, unfortunately the tongue len oreos okay. but um yeah. yeah yeah so i will put a link in the show notes in the video description for the website so that people okay. can go there and i'll also put links for the for the new book as well yeah and yeah i mentioned the old book right moonlight yeah. Yeah. all of those this new book as well as the old book can also be ordered from our website. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Well, you can see, Paul, you can see excerpts from it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I loved the book, and it was one that I wished that I had more time to kind of revisit before speaking with you, because there's sometimes the ideas I you, I, I need I wanted them to I I wanted to sit with them mm -hmm. a little bit more. Well, I really loved your personal engagement with the book and with this material. And of course, if you ever want to talk again, I would be delighted. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your presence this morning and sharing your wisdom. It is, I'm so grateful for that. My delight. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap on episode 67 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio, please consider becoming a patron. There are currently four levels of membership, Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shoutouts to members, a members-only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discord server, a monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for a monthly cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, or even coworkers that you think will enjoy it. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. As I've mentioned previously, I often kid that I'm here in the Southland doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, please, by all means, help share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. 
you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.